Conclusion Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do not iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Psalm 119, 1-6. These words of the psalmist do not express the sentiments of modern man. Modern man despises biblical law, for it threatens to restrain him and the vain works of his imagination. Biblical law places restraints on the state as well as on individual evildoers. It defines evil in terms of the revealed laws of a God who threatens covenant breakers with eternal torture, a God who knows the hearts and minds of every person, and who judges them accordingly. Modern man does not want to be reminded of such a God or the judgment to come, so he renounces biblical law. He correctly sees biblical law as a curse on his dreams of autonomy. A society that renounces biblical law has two choices, to attempt to construct a legal order that is either more rigorous than biblical law or more lenient. Such a society inevitably turns aside from God's law. It violates God's commandment. Ye shall observe to do therefore as the Lord your God hath commanded you. Ye shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Deuteronomy 5.32 Anarchism beckons on one side, while a one-world socialist state beckons on the other. If covenant-breaking man identifies with the criminal, he will prefer judicial leniency. He knows what is coming for him, in eternity if God's word is true. So he sides ethically, emotionally, and philosophically with the criminal, in whose camp God also places him, covenant-breaker. On the other hand, covenant-breaking man may choose to imitate God, to become part of a messianic political movement that uses state power in a program to redeem some men and to crush all opposition. In this case, he will seek to make civil law more rigorous and more harsh than the Old Testament law. Or he may hold both positions at once, as the modern humanist liberal has done, by condemning the West's criminal justice system as being far too harsh, while praising communist re-education camps as being truly, or at least necessarily, progressive. He rejects the West as too severe judiciously, yet praises the communist for being realistic in setting up slave labor camps. As is so often the case, Malcolm Muggridge has magnificently described this schizophrenic liberal mentality and the effective use that the communists have made of it. I have seen many Soviet frontiers with barbed wire and landmines and dogs with armed sentries and watchtowers ready to shoot on sight like prison guards, all designed not so much to bar people from coming in as to prevent those inside from getting out. How strange I have often reflected that a regime which needs thus to pin up its citizens should nonetheless be able to make itself seem desirable to admirers outside, as though the purpose in taking the Bastille should have been to gain admission there and do a stretch. Spiritual Schizophrenia There are millions of Christians today who suffer from a similar kind of intellectual schizophrenia. They contemptuously reject the Old Testament's legal system, claiming that any attempt to revive it would be a sure road to tyranny. They ignore the obvious fact that the Bible clearly reveals that Israel's rival kingdoms in the ancient Near East were the tyrannies. 
for those cultures were in bondage to false gods, but without biblical law to guide them in the reconstruction of the visibly corrupt societies and institutions of the modern world, what Bible-based alternative can they offer? None. Perceiving this to be their dilemma, Christians then express complete satisfaction that we Christians can live faithfully under any kind of political or economic system, meaning that it makes no difference if God's people return to Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. In the very next breath, they condemn Old Testament law as morally questionable and politically intolerable. Somehow it seems that Christians can live faithfully under any legal order except the one that God established for his covenant people, Israel. Marx is tolerable. Moses is not. Christians, especially college classroom Christians, proclaim confidently that the Bible does not offer judicial blueprints for social reform. This viewpoint leads to one of three conclusions. One, there are no biblical standards of social reform, and therefore there is no legitimate Christian responsibility to promote social reform, dispensational fundamentalism. Two, there are standards of social reform, but they are not uniquely biblical, liberalism, modernism. Three, there are standards of social reform, but we cannot turn to biblical law to find them, so we therefore should use biblical phrases to baptize numerous social reform programs that the humanist political liberals abandoned as unworkable or ineffective ten years ago. Trendier than thou, neo-evangelicalism, or what William White has dubbed the Wheaton Pox, New York University psychological professor Paul Vitz is being overly generous when he wrote that somehow the Christian world is always buying into secular ideas at the top of their influence and selling out Christian ideas just when they have no place to go but up. Instead, neo-evangelicals consistently pay retail price for dead secular ideas 10 years after everyone else has sold them at a discount into the used fads market. Fundamentalists enthusiastically stand up and sing the words of the hymn, Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all thy day, and then sit down to delight in an hour-long sermon that rejects Old Testament law as legalistic. They dismiss the stoning of gluttonous, drunkard, rebellious adult sons as barbaric, and then are preached into a frenzy about the evils of demon rum. For over a century, American fundamentalists have had no influence on the social and political events of the day, save only for the ill-fated political experiment in the United States called Prohibition, 1918 to 1933. Prohibition's visible failure to keep people from drinking alcohol and the voters' subsequent repeal of the 18th Amendment drove fundamentalists into the American political wilderness for two generations. How can people who prefer anything and anyone to Moses be expected to speak out effectively in the name of the Lord on social and cultural issues? They can't, they haven't, and they don't. They won't, either, until they rediscover and recommit to Exodus 21-23. through 23. It is here that we find the theological foundation for a thoroughly biblical reform of the criminal justice system, which today surely is criminal. The Reform of the Criminal Justice System What would be the marks of civil justice during an era of biblical justice? Victims would see the restitution of their stolen assets, while criminals would see their ill-gotten capital melt away because of the financial burden of making restitution payments. The dual sanctions of curse and blessing 
part four of the biblical covenant model, are invoked and imposed wherever the principle of restitution is honored in the courts, both civil and ecclesiastical. Restitution brings both judgment and restoration, which affects individual lives and social institutions. There are limits to biblical restitution. First, the full value of whatever was stolen is returned by the thief to the original owner. Second, the thief makes an additional penalty payment equal to the value of the item stolen. To encourage criminals to admit their guilt and seek restoration before their crimes are discovered, the Bible imposes a reduced penalty of 20% on those who admit their guilt voluntarily. Leviticus 6, 2-5 There are two explicit exceptions to the payment of double restitution. The law singles out oxen and sheep as deserving special protection in the form of fivefold and fourfold restitution in cases where the stolen animals are killed or sold. Because oxen and sheep are symbolic of helpless human beings, God's law and principle points to the need of protecting men from oppression and slavery. Man is given responsibility over oxen and sheep, implying that he is also given responsibility over other men in various circumstances. He employs them or makes lawful use of their services. To use illegal physical coercion to thwart another person's exercise of his lawful calling is a crime against that person's God-given position as dominion man and is punishable by God. This is why kidnapping and murder are capital crimes. The fivefold and fourfold restitution payments for slaughtered or resold ox and sheep are symbolic of these two extremely serious crimes against people. The Goals of Restitution Economic Proportional restitution is imposed by the civil government as God's lawful representative on earth. The three economic goals of proportional restitution are these. 1. Restoring full value to the victim. 2. Protecting future potential victims by means of the deterrence effect of the penalty payment. Deuteronomy 13.11 A. Animals, especially those symbolic of man's helplessness, sheep and oxen, and B. Property owners. And 3. Offsetting the lower economic risks of detection associated with certain kinds of theft, the slaughter or sale of specially protected edible animals. All of these are designed to protect the rights of victims. The innocent, not the guilty, are to be the recipients of protection from the civil government. The victim can agree to be lenient to the criminal by accepting a reduced restitution payment, but that decision is his, not the court's. Civil Biblical restitution also has at least three civil goals in addition to the three economic goals. The first civil goal of restitution is to make life easier for the law-abiding citizen by fostering external social conditions in which he can live in peace and safety. Peace and safety are the fully legitimate goals of all biblical justice, which God has promised to bring to pass in world history through his church during a future period of earthly millennial peace. The nations will come to God's church, the mountain of the house of the Lord, in search of true justice. Micah 4, 1-5 A second civil goal of biblical restitution is to make possible the full judicial restoration of the criminal to society after he has paid the victim what he owes him. The state is not to concern itself with the psychological restoration of the criminal, the victim, or society in general. The state's jurisdiction is strictly limited to the realm of the judicial restitution. The psychological state of the criminal is between himself and God, as is the psychological state of the victim. Nevertheless, as is the case of the salvation of any individual by God's grace, 
Judicial restoration is the first step toward psychological restoration. The modern U.S. practice of never again allowing convicted felons to vote is clearly immoral. Under biblical law, a convicted criminal becomes a former convicted criminal when he has made full restitution to his victims. In this sense, he is resurrected judiciously. After he has paid his debt to his victims, he must be restored to full political participation. To segregate the former convicted criminal from any area of civic authority or participation is to deny judicially that full civil restoration is made possible by means of God's civil law. The third civil goal of biblical restitution is not intuitively obvious, but it may be the most important goal for the modern world. A system of biblical restitution is required in order to reduce the likelihood that citizens will come to view the civil government as an agency that lawfully initiates programs leading to personal or social transformation. The state's task is to assess the economic damage that was inflicted on the victim and then impose judgment on the convicted criminal that will reimburse the victim for his loss, plus a penalty payment. Normally, this means double restitution. The state is not an agency of creative transformation. It is not to be regarded as a savior state. Men should not seek to make the state an agency of social salvation. It is supposed to enforce biblical civil law, no more, no less. The state is not supposed to seek to make men righteous. Its God's assigned task is to restrain certain specified acts of public evil. Theft is one of these acts. Civil government is an agency of visible judgment in history. Justice demands judgment. The judgments handed down by civil government acknowledge the historic judgments of God, as well as point to the final judgment of God. The goal of civil justice is always restoration. Restoration through restitution or restoration through execution. This twofold system of civil judgment also characterizes God's judgments, which are equally judicial. Judgment unto restoration. When God deals with his people in a harsh way in history, it is a means of restoration, judgment unto restoration, not judgment unto destruction. The atoning work of Jesus Christ at Calvary points the way to a better world in history. Restitution has been made to God by the only possible ethically acceptable representative of man, the Son of God. The Christian's expectation of better earthly times is therefore valid. Christ's restitution payment has been made on earth and in history. One thing which is needed to translate his atonement into social reality is the progressive transformation of the criminal justice system in terms of biblical law, something which cannot take place until the humanistic theology which undergirds the existing system of criminal justice is replaced by biblical orthodoxy. This means comprehensive revival. Anyone who denies that such a progressive transformation of the criminal justice system is possible in history is thereby also denying that the atoning work of Christ can be manifested progressively in history. Anyone who denies that such a progressive transformation of the criminal justice system will actually take place in history is thereby also denying that the atoning work of Christ will be actually manifested progressively in history. 
People should therefore consider carefully the economic, social, political, and ethical implications of their eschatological views. When they make eschatological pronouncements, they are inescapably also making implicit economic, social, political, and ethical pronouncements. Eschatology and ethics cannot be successfully separated.